Well, hi everybody. Welcome to The Witchy Historian. Uh, as you know, I'm Crystalina May, and uh, I have some bad news. We're not going to talk about Thomas Aquinas today because I spent the entire last two weeks speed writing my first draft of my master's thesis <laughs> um, on top of a bunch of other crazy things that have happened over the last couple of weeks. I think I mentioned my grandmother passing and there's just been a lot of like mental health and grieving and stress with school and all of the things and it's all piling up rather quickly. But in lieu of a regular episode, I wanted to take a few minutes to let everybody know that, hey, I'm good. Um, you know, every day is, every day is a new day and we're getting there and it's going to be fine. Um, but now that I've done a good portion of my research on the topic of my master's thesis, even though this is not directly related to the witchcraft trials, it does tie very closely into things that we are seeing happen in the United States today. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of this legislation that we see happening at the state level, some of these proposed federal legislations that we've seen talking about banning gay marriage again, talking about ban uh, abortion bans, uh, birth control restrictions and bans, or banning certain types of birth control like IUDs and um, fallopian tube coils and things like that. So a lot of that type of stuff, but we also have a lot of this anti-trans rhetoric that's been going on. A lot of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and most of it is focused on how people are presenting how their gender presentation lines up with their biological makeup which if you know the science behind biology and gender and all of that you know that almost nobody is perfectly male and perfectly female it just does not happen. It is not, it, 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 there are so many different ways for our bodies to appear female, but be chromosomally male or to appear male and be genetically female. So there are science is complicated. Biology is complicated. Genetics are complicated chromosomes and understanding how everything works together to create who we are. It's complicated, right? But this is stuff that they didn't know back in the 17th century, and especially not in 17th century England, under the rule of James I, the first king of England. He was also James VI of Scotland. And he was a Protestant king. So he wasn't, he didn't practice Catholicism. Uh, he, came, he came after Elizabeth I. So if you know anything about the Tudors, you know that Henry VIII 
left the Catholic Church, founded the Anglican Church, created the monarchy as the head of church and state as the same office. And then when Queen Mary came to the throne, his daughter, his eldest daughter, she was Catholic and she converted all of England back to Catholicism or tried. And then when her little sister Elizabeth came along, Elizabeth I, she shifted everything back to Protestantism or tried. And there has been a lot of discourse discussing this, we call this the Long Reformation of early modern England. But in 1650, so James I comes to the throne in 1603. Elizabeth I was one of the longest living monarchs at the time. She reigned for a very, very, very long time. And she had an immense amount of power. She never married. She refused to listen to her advisors when they were trying to convince her to get married to other people, uh, other monarchs for either political wealth or to help boost the coffers of the throne of the royal family. She would not listen. She wanted nothing to do with it. She refused to name an heir until she was literally on her deathbed. And there is even a little bit of hesitancy to to verify whether or not the will of secession that grants James I the throne upon her death was actually her idea, whether she actually signed it or whether one of her advisors signed it in her name. So there's a lot of suspicion and question about whether she truly ever named James as her heir. However, based on the rights of secession and the will that Henry VIII put forth, James would have been the next in line after Elizabeth died since she had no heirs. She had no direct heirs. And the next person in line after her would have been Mary, Queen of Scots, who was James's mother. And Elizabeth had executed um, about, I think it was about 10 or 15 years prior to that, um, for the suspicion of killing her husband, James I's father. But that is another story for another day. So James I, he is the first Stuart king, and most historians of this period and who are familiar with early modern England will tell you that the Stuarts were notoriously bad at kinging, and James set the precedent. So he really just was not very good. He was a scholar. He didn't want to be king, but that's what he was trained for his whole life. But he wanted to be an academic, and he wrote dissertation after dissertation. He was a very learned man and very, very intelligent. And he had a lot of these ideas and a lot of his religious ideas. While he might not have been strictly Calvinist or Puritan, he had a lot of ideas that tied into their ideal of intelligent and educated norm. They wanted their 
parishioners, the people who were participating in the church, to be educated enough to read the Bible for themselves. They believed in absolute one-on-one relationship with the Bible and with God. And in order to do that, you had to be able to read it. So they believed that men and women and children should be taught to read and write at the basic level. Maybe not advanced, but at the basic level. And they also used early philosophy, early ideals that later on were connected to the Enlightenment to support a lot of their doctrine and dogma. So these are ideals that James I actually held very, very dear to him. And he did believe in, even if he didn't agree with all of the dogma of the Reformed Church. So the Reformed Protestant Church was also um, called the Puritan Church or the Calvinist Church. They were all kind of under the same general umbrella, although they did have a few different ideas and there was a lot of offshoots that developed over time. But for all intents and purposes, those three terms in this period are fairly interchangeable. So during this period of time, there's a lot of anxiety about gender because James is recognizing that this very strong monarch, Elizabeth I, his predecessor, had set a precedent that women could be independent and strong. And he's starting to think that this precedent is undermining the patriarchal government structure and family structure that he thinks he has the divine right to enforce. And he discusses this in The Divine Right of Kings, which is a dissertation that he publishes in the 1610s. And... Under this ideal, one of the first things he says when he comes into the kingship is that a king is to his country as as God is to the church, as the father is to the home. And he places himself in a position of loving authority, but also absolute authority. And he very genuinely believes that this authority is granted directly from God and that it cannot be undermined and taken away from anybody or by anybody. And if anyone tries to do that, that they are literally actively sinning and they are in joined cahoots with the devil. So he has this really, really intense fear of witches Um, which I will not get into today because this is going to tie into the actual podcast episodes later. But this, he has this really, really intense fear of witches because he has very intense fear of powerful women. And he tries, once he does finally get married to his wife, he tries very hard to keep her out of politics, to not let her be involved, which is very strange for the times. In France and Spain, the queen was often, if not directly involved, at least consulted behind closed doors and at least, you know, sometimes brought into these conversations because they often involved her family members when we're talking about international 
conversations and deals and trades and treaties and things like that. So her, she has to be consulted because her family is going to be affected, which can then impact her relationship with the rest of the world, right? So James tries really hard to keep Anne out of these conversations, but it doesn't work very well. And he's kind of a little perturbed, although they do end up having seven children. But of course, there's a lot of speculation as to uh, his sexuality, whether he was bisexual or even gay. He uh, There's a lot of evidence that he had several male lovers throughout his life. And there's a lot of resentment towards women that he harbors. And it intensifies when he marries Anne. And so there's a lot of speculation. And of course, we can psychoanalyze James all we want. We can psychoanalyze any historical character all we want. But there's a lot of speculation regarding why this intensifies so much and why he targets women, if not explicitly, nearly exclusively in his anti-witch hunts and trials and all of that and the ways that he is telling people to hunt for witches is very very gendered even if they didn't realize it at the time because they didn't have a concept of gender it sex and being male or female was something that was very based on outward presentation and not necessarily on biological sex but again, James has this really weird fear of underlying wi- of women taking power that they don't have the right to have because it inverts what he thinks is the godly structure of the home, of the family, of the nation, and that he was given the divine right to rule and therefore he has absolute authority and any woman who defies him including his own wife must be ungodly and therefore must be in jointure with the devil and there is a rhetoric that develops because prior to this there was a lot of discussion about women who were engaging with the devil or devilry ways, witches, they were being conned by the devil, right? They were being manipulated and deceived and tricked into agreeing to these things. But in this period, there is a lot of women are not being deceived. Women are active deceivers already. So it stands to reason that if they are especially deceitful and if they are not actively combating that innate desire to be diabolical, they are working as the devil, not just as his agent, but current, like actively as a partner, as an equal partner with the devil and demons and things like that. So there is this really intense religious and political fear that is spurred on by some of the other social anxieties of the time. One of those social anxieties, besides the structure of the home, 
And this is the terminology that is used in the text. This is not proper terminology for today. So I'm going to put a little disclaimer right on the front of this here. But the terminology that is in the text is cross-dressing women. So these are women that are wearing men's clothes. These are women that are wearing trousers and breeches. Breech breeches. Excuse me. Stumbling over my words. And jackets. And they're going around town in shoes and with canes and they are engaging in business and they're moving through society as if they are men. And prior to this, it was considered a little weird, but it was pretty much, okay. they were like, all right, okay. And this is generally women who are born into wealth and who... Um, maybe don't have any male heirs in the family or who inherited something from their father and wanted to be able to maintain power over that land and that wealth. So instead of marrying a husband uh, and during this time, there's the law of coverture. So if a woman gets married, no matter whatever property she has, she becomes dead in the name of the law and all of her property belongs to her husband. Now, he cannot get rid of it, sell it, whatever, all of those things without her permission, technically speaking. But of course, if she's technically not a person under this law of coverture, it changes the dynamic. And this is part of the reason why divorce, England was one of the very last Western European nations to allow divorce after the Reformation. Because... If she was dead in the name of the law or like just was not, she no longer had personhood separate from her husband. They were joined. Everything that she did directly was connected to her husband. It had to go through him first, not vice versa, of course, but it had to go through him first. So once that happens, how do you reverse that? How do you grant a person their personhood back? once you've legally erased it. And this is a big debate in early modern England. So when you have women that are completely defying this structure of coverture and inheritance, and they are keeping wealth and power and influence for themselves, even if it's just as merchants or tradesmen or whatever, poses a threat, especially to a king who inherited a kingdom whose treasury is emptying faster than it can be filled. And part of that is because the Tudors were really bad at handling money. The Stuarts were also not great at handling money, but I think they did the best they could with the mess that they were handle handed. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this is the context of the Swetnam controversy. So the Swetnam controversy happens in 1615. Joseph Swetnam, he's a pamphleteer. He's just kind of like a middling, lower middling class kind of person, not very wealthy, but he has a little bit of money. And he writes a pamphlet called The Arraignment of Women. And that's the short title, but the long title is really long and really, really angering. So I will not read that to you all right now. <laughs> but he writes this pamphlet 
And in it, he describes how because of Eve, of course, it all, it always goes back to the garden, that all women are inherently deceitful, that all women are inherently hypersexual, and that they are inherently meant to cause trouble for all of mankind. And in it, he gives a little tiny blurb of, of course, there are some women who are trying really hard to fight against these urges, and they should be commended. But it's this tiny, tiny, very backhanded compliment. And um, this sparks a debate. So in France, this had been going on, these, the, we call it the Querel de Femme, or the debates of women, of women. And this conversation had been going on since the 1530s or so about the inherent goodness or badness of women. And as part of these quarrels, Joseph Swetnam steps into the conversation in early modern England, 1615. He publishes this pamphlet. And two years later, Rachel Specht, she responds. With, and she is the daughter of a minister. She is 19 years old. She is a middling class woman, educated, higher, more educated than most women of even her station at the time. And she publishes a response but she doesn't address him directly in this response. She instead discusses, she speaks about him in metaphor and discusses the melastomas or the black mouth, which is somebody who is uneducated, doesn't know what they're talking about and spews hateful words for the sake of spewing hateful words. And so that's what she engages with. And there is on a particular copy of her response of this pamphlet that she used to respond, there is what we call the, um, oh, I forgot the word now, but he is uh, the annotator. And it's typically, most likely this person is anonymous, but this person is most likely male judging by the way that they write and they are annotating her work in the margins and making comments about the fact that she is single and not married yet. And the fact that she is an impure woman because she, she shouldn't, she shouldn't be preaching she should know better than to be preaching because she's a minister's daughter and all of this type of stuff. So Joseph Swetnam and likely this annotator, they are probably from the Reformed Church, the Puritan Church camp or something similar to it, where they have this idea that women are not to be teachers of anyone but the children, because the women are not in upper leadership of the home, of the family. That's not part of the structure. They belong under the husband. And if they're not married, they belong under the father. So Rachel, by writing this, steps out from underneath that protection. 
and is considered like wackadoodle for doing it. So then we have another response from a person who is likely a woman, but they wrote under a pseudonym and the pseudonym is Esther Sourenim instead of Sweatnum, which is a Gaelic version, one of the Gaelic versions of Sweetnim. So Sourenim responds with, as, as somebody who is very highly educated, they respond with a list of the good and the bad. They, they enter this because Sweatnam started out with just a bunch of volatile nonsense. Spect responds with biblical corrections against his claims of scripture. He claims the scripture says one thing. She says, I'm a minister's daughter. You're wrong. So she presents herself as the righteous Christian woman sharing the correct scripture. Sourenim comes in and presents themselves as the educated scholar and they structure their response to Swetnam as the standard quarrels had been structured with lists of the traits of a good woman and a bad woman, of points specifically responding to Swetnam, attacking both his character and his scholarship. So this is a much more highly educated person. This is a person who is presenting themselves as at least upper gentry, if not nobility. And then we have the last response, which is Constantia Munda, which is another pseudonym. And there's a lot of debate in the historical community about whether this person wrote this as satire and that and they were a man, or if they did write it as a genuine response to Sweatnam. And if they did write it as a genuine response to Sweatnam, they could have been male or female. Um, and of course, it stands to reason that they could have been female if they were writing it as satire as well, but it's much less likely because of the contents of it. And this is called The Worming of a Mad Dog. And this is a discussion about, and it's very pointed, and it has a lot of very aggressive language in it, not quite, but very nearly matching the aggressiveness of Swetnam's language a few years prior. So that's part of the reason why this is considered, well, maybe, maybe a man wrote this as satire, trying to demonstrate how ridiculous it was that women were even trying to enter this conversation because that this wasn't their place to do that. 
according to this belief system, to this dogma, the doctrine and the anxieties that were being spurred on and the propaganda that was being pumped out. So in 1620, a play was written, again, anonymously, and it's called Swetnam, the woman hater. And in the play, Swetnam is represented by a character of the name of misogynist. And this is where the term misogynistic is attributed to getting its roots. And it is very Shakespearean in style, although it was not written by Shakespeare because he was dead by this point. Um, but yeah, so that is where I'm at with my research. <laughs> um, but this is the kind of rhetoric that was baked in to the doctrine and the ideology that was used to establish things like the slave trade, to establish things like the American colonies. And as the American government began to develop in the 1780s, this is the ideal that was used, the Puritan Calvinist religious ideal, even though the founding fathers themselves specifically stated that religion should not be used in the creation of a nation or in enforcing government. This is the ideals and the types of doctrine that were baked into those structures. And we can see how this has come kind of around full circle again. And this has been kind of an ebb and flow throughout history. But now we are seeing these measures trying to be put in place. We have bills all across the nation, anti-trans bill, anti-LGBTQ bill, anti-education you know, anti bills, anti because they want to control the education. They want only very specific types of education to be taught. This is another thing that's happening in the early modern period as well. And they don't want, they talk about being a Christian nation. The founding fathers specifically said that we're not a Christian nation, but there's an idea that we should be. And this goes back to that kind of Calvinist idea of that, that there is a divine right, a divine calling to be a Christian nation. So, and this is something that develops out of the Calvinist camp. This is not a reg this is not something that Protestants in general believe. This is not something that the Catholic Church believes in. This is something that is very very specifically from the what that was considered at the time the radical Protestants, the Puritans, the Calvinists, the reformed churches. And they were a minority to the point that they were eventually driven out of England. They were banished. And they went to go live in Holland and then they had to get kicked out of Holland too. And that is when they came to Virginia and established Jamestown. So there is, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot there, but this is where the same ideal, the same religious mindset is where a lot of these types of legislation ideas come from in that we have to enforce what we deem as acceptable behavior 
upon others based strictly on our religious affiliation and that our religious affiliation makes us morally superior and therefore more deserving and more inherently deserving. That's the key. The more inherently valuable as human beings. And this is something that is still taught in certain Calvinist cult groups today. Not all Christians are part of a cult. Not all Calvinists are part of this type of thinking, but I was raised in one that was. Uh, the Your big biggest red flags are going to be blatant racism, blatant anti-Semitism, and blatant misogyny. And these are the things that we are seeing try to be put in place by law today. Fortunately, while the people in government that are trying to do those things are annoyingly loud, they are definitely a minority. And therefore, hopefully, if we all keep, you know, standing up for what's right and fighting the good fight, we will be able to prevent anything from, you know, like, what happened in 1642 in England <laughs> from happening here. Um, and if you don't know about the English Civil War, um, I can I can bring you all up to speed on that another time when I'm doing one of these kind of one-off silly episodes. So I didn't take any notes on any of this. I didn't write anything down. I just decided I was going to randomly record because otherwise I wasn't going to have anything to drop for you guys today. So, um... Before I go, I am going to read the calendar of the day for y'all. March 30th is the Ram. It's Aries season, y'all. Aries season is here. And the Ram represents determination, action, initiative, and leadership. These are all key aspects of the Ram's power. When the Ram appears, it is time to pay attention. Assume responsibility take action, and get motivated to accomplish your goals. And in the tarot, we can see the ram at, in the emperor and the queen of pentacles. So happy Aries season, y'all. I hope you had a great couple of weeks. I am going to hop off here. If you don't know where to find me, check the show notes. Uh, I'm not going to do my normal sign off because I'm tired and it has been a, a long couple of weeks and I'm ready to go to bed. I have school all day tomorrow. So I'm going to, I'm going to go crawl in bed and I'm going to drop this first thing Thursday morning. And you know, uh, I hope you just, I hope y'all just have a great couple of weeks. I will be back. Um, when is that going to be? I don't even know. Some, you know, April something. Let me pull up a calendar really quickly. So you see, I didn't take notes. I didn't prepare anything. This is me winging it. I hope I hope you all are enjoying it. Um, April 13th. Smack dab between the pink moon and the new moon. I will be back April 13th and we will talk about Thomas Aquinas. Um, 
And if something happens between then and now, I will let you all know. <laughs> and I will drop another one of these silly episodes. So, yeah. I hope you all had a great day. And have a great couple of weeks. And I will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.